Welcome to Dead of the Night, an investigative podcast looking into the disappearance of Devin Riesling. I'm Jessica O'Neill, and today I'll be filling in for Kenneth Bailey. So much has changed since our last episode. So much, I honestly don't know where to begin. Everything I thought I knew was wrong, and now I'm left here alone to piece together the truth. Right now I feel so betrayed and confused that it's difficult for me to find words. And there were many times over the last week that I considered throwing in the towel on this whole podcast. But I'm going to try my best to bring all of you up to speed because you guys have done nothing but support this journey to find Devin and you all deserve answers. You're probably all quite confused now, so let me back up and start from the moment this story turned upside down. The moment that Brett called us with the initial results from the forensic testing. Hey Brett, uh, do you have some news for us? Um, is Jessica there with you? Yeah, I've uh, actually got her on speak. I've got you on speakerphone. Hey Brett. Hi Jessica. So what's up? Are you both sitting down? Well, yeah, I- I'm sitting down. What is it? So my contact just got back to me. The blood evidence they found was not in Garrett's van, like we had guessed. It was actually in Devin's vehicle. It looked like it had been cleaned up. I found it using luminol, which is why we didn't notice it earlier. Is it Devin's blood? Have they tested it yet? The test just came back, and it was not Devin's blood. So, Garrett, then? Not, not Garrett. What, then? Who? I don't think you're going to like this. You're freaking me out. Just tell us. your blood. It matched your DNA. What? That doesn't make any sense. How could it be my blood? Are you sure? They're sure. should probably stop talking after this, and if I were you, Kenneth, I would get a lawyer. No. No. This can't be right. This makes no sense. I don't... No! I... I should go now. Okay. There has to be a reasonable explanation for this. I mean... Brett and I examined that vehicle. We wore gloves, but I, I don't know, maybe I, I cut myself and I didn't notice. <laughs> but Brett said the blood had been cleaned up. I... Stop looking at me like that. I'm... You know me. The only thing that I can think of is this. I... I've been having these sleeping problems recently. How can you possibly explain this? Okay, okay. I've been having sleeping problems, obviously, and I've been taking these new sleeping pills, okay? My dad says he found me the other night sleepwalking from my room. Okay, Roseanne. Uh, Roseanne what? Roseanne Barr. She said a bunch of racist shit on Twitter and blamed it on taking Ambien. Yeah, I guess like that. Kenneth, people might get on Twitter when they're on Ambien, but they don't fucking kill people. I didn't kill her. Then what? are you saying? I'm saying maybe I went there in the middle of the night, maybe I went to the impound lot, and I cut, I cut myself, uh, and there's a lot of broken and glass. And then you cleaned it up? I, maybe. I don't know. So, you drove all the way to Crouch, while on Ambien, got into the campground lot, cut yourself, cleaned it up, and drove all the way back without remembering anything. Sleep driving? is literally one of the symptoms. It's on the bottle. Here, 
Let me show you. It's... It's right here. Okay. Look, you're right. <sighs> okay. Okay. Just calm down. Okay. We can figure this out. Okay. Let's just take a deep breath. We figure this out. Okay. Okay. Now, doesn't the impound lot have cameras? Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think I remember seeing cameras. Okay, so all we need to do is get the footage for the last six months, watch it, and maybe we can find some footage of me sleepwalking. Perfect, I'll call them right now. Thank you. I wish I could tell you all right now that everything turned out okay, that it was all just a big mistake, that the next day we got the footage from the impound lot and found a video of Kenneth sleepwalking in the middle of the night, getting injured on a piece of broken glass and accidentally leaving his DNA in Devin's car long after she disappeared. But that's not what happened, because we never got the security camera footage from the impound lot. An impound lot in Crouch went up in flames last night. Police and fire services were called to Banks Loman Towing just south of Banks Loman Road at 3.45 a.m. Fire crews say there are no casualties or injuries since the building was empty. Uh, upon my arrival, I observed that the smoke was coming out. It was black smoke, heavy smoke. I notified my dispatch to get the fire department in or out immediately to check the scene. The fire is under control now, but the office building was completely incinerated as well as five vehicles that were parked in the impound lot. Fire crews say an investigation is pending, but arson is not being ruled out at this time. Hey, you got your bag? Yeah, I, it's right here. Alright. Thanks for dropping me off. I know things are weird. I just, I don't know what's going on with me. Just get better, okay? Okay. I'll try. No, I... I... I am trying. Bye. I'm recording this from my car. I'm sitting outside of Intermountain Hospital. It's a psychiatric hospital in Boise. Kenneth just got out of my car. He's checking himself in and... I don't really know what to think. He claims that he was not responsible for the fire at the impound lot, but I honestly don't know if I believe him. I don't know what to believe right now. Kenneth asked me to take him to the hospital because he felt like... He felt like he was losing his mind, and honestly, I don't blame him. I need answers. Fuck. This wasn't even supposed to be my podcast. I was just supposed to be helping with the audio. But now I feel responsible. Now I feel like I have to keep going. I'm involved now. And I thought this podcast was supposed to be doing something good. But now I wonder if I was just being used this whole time for Kenneth's sick personal gain. Never in a million years did I think it would come to this. But I think I have to investigate Kenneth. The first question that I needed to answer was how Kenneth's DNA was even in the criminal database in the first place, which is the only way it could have matched with the sample taken from Devin's car. 
In Idaho, DNA is only taken from people charged with a felony. But Kenneth's background didn't reveal any felony charges or arrests, which made me wonder if maybe something happened when Kenneth was still a minor and his juvenile records have since been sealed or expunged. If I was going to get any answers, I needed to talk to someone who knew Kenneth back then. So I found one of Devin's yearbooks, looked up Kenneth, and found that he was on the school paper. Then I started making phone calls. One day during our senior year, I was sitting in geometry class and the teacher comes in and says there's a bomb threat and we all have to evacuate the building. The voice you're hearing is Sam Parson, a classmate of Kenneth Bailey's. They were both on the school paper together from freshman through senior year. Emmett High is such a small school, you know? That kind of stuff doesn't really happen to us, but then it started happening like almost every week. I want to say like maybe three, four times. Then there was a bomb threat every fucking week. Since Kenneth was the editor of the paper, he had us all working on this whole in-depth expose about bomb threats in America, like the psychology of who would call in a bomb threat and statistics about school violence, tracing the clues left behind, that kind of shit. And it was great actually because I guess the principal was just about to next the whole newspaper program, mostly because nothing ever fucking happens here and the school paper was running out of stuff to even fucking talk about. And then suddenly these bomb threats happen and everyone's trying to get a hold of the school paper. Then one day, we're in the computer lab working on a layout, and the cops came in and asked for Kenneth, and they dragged Kenneth out in handcuffs. I didn't see Kenneth again for the rest of the year, but I messaged him on Facebook being like, where'd you go, and what happened? Basically, it was him the whole time. He was the one calling in the bomb threats. He was just doing it to save the newspaper. Do you know if he was ever charged? That seems like a pretty serious crime. Um, he told me that they were going to send him to juvie, but I guess he got a really good lawyer and they just gave him a shitload of community service. So, while in high school, Kenneth had called in multiple bomb threats in order to create a juicy story for the school newspaper. Finding out that Kenneth had a history of engineering situations so he could investigate them was concerning. What kind of a person did that? Who scares their fellow classmates like that? make them hide under their desks with the lights turned off, or even evacuate the school, miss out on entire days of learning, just so they can write articles for the school paper about it. Kenneth had always seemed to me like a moral and grounded person. Maybe a little quick to jump to conclusions, but surely not capable of this. I didn't grow up in Emmett, and I met Kenneth for the first time when he came into my radio station in Boise last year. Everything he told me about himself, about Emmett, even his limited relationship with Devin, I took at his word. After he checked himself into the hospital, he begged me to keep the podcast going, to keep searching for answers, and he gave me access to all the audio files, the evidence, everything he gathered about Devin, and I started pouring through it all. Which is when I found this voicemail. You can't avoid me forever, Kenny. I know where you fucking live. You better stay the fuck out of my business or you're going to be in a world of fucking hurt. When Kenneth sent me this voicemail to include in the podcast, it was already cut into clips. The entire middle part of the voicemail had been edited out. I just assumed that the parts that were skipped over were just cruel profanities, and that's why Kenneth wanted to leave it out. But something fell off about it. Usually, I was the one who was doing all the editing. On a hunch, I tracked down the original, unedited voicemail from a hard drive that Kenneth gave me before he left and what I found would change this case forever. You can't avoid me forever, Kenny. I know where you fucking live. And I know that you fucked Devin at that summer camp. <laughs> what? 
Well, you don't think you didn't tell me? You don't want anyone to know about that, do you? And I've been listening to your little podcast, you piece of shit. And you conveniently left out that piece of information. You better stay the fuck out of my business or you're going to be in a world of fucking hurt. And I know that you fucked Devin at that summer camp. And I know that you fucked Devin at that summer camp. You don't want anyone to know about that, do you? And I know that you fucked Devin at that summer camp. Hey, this is Jessica. I'm not supposed to talk to you. You know how to get a fucking lawyer? Because Kenny decided to fuck up my entire life and now the cops are at my fucking ass. Garrett, Garrett, Kenneth's not here, okay? It's just me. I, I just need to know something about Kenneth. <sighs> like what? That he's a fucking loser? Like, did he really have sex with Devin? Hey, what do you think? You think somebody's gonna do all this for a stranger? For somebody that they went to high school with? Nobody cared that Devin was missing except for him. Why the fuck do you think that is? Fuck. My lord's gonna fucking kill me if he knew I was talking to you. But uh, I can't do this. Was it possible that Kenneth and Devin had a closer relationship than Kenneth led us all to believe? In episode one, Kenneth maintains that him and Devin weren't friends in high school and didn't spend much time together. Was that the truth or not? Hey, this is Jessica. I can't answer my phone right now, so leave a message at the beep. Hey, uh, listen, Kenneth is my best friend, and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to say anything bad about him. I don't know what you and the police think he did, but I'm telling you, dude, he's just not that kind of person, so please just uh, don't call me again. I was running into dead end after dead end while chasing down this lead. As far as finding evidence was concerned, I had to start digging in the bottom of the barrel. I even paid $39.99 to one of those background check websites. Unfortunately, Canis juvenile criminal records were sealed. The rest of his background was pretty boring. He doesn't own any property or businesses. No bankruptcies, marriages, or other criminal history. However, I did find a list of old email addresses associated with his name, including some from old Yahoo and Hotmail email accounts that were clearly not in use anymore. Then I did a deep dive, looking for old social media accounts associated with those emails, and that's how I found Kenneth's old live journal. He was active from 2012 to 2015, when he was between 13 and 16 years old. I started scouring them for any mention of Devin, and that's when I found it. An entry from August 12, 2015, titled Bored at Home. It's one of those surveys that you copy and paste from another blogger and fill in with your own answers. The questions include these gems. What is the longest time you have slept for? Kenneth wrote, once I fell asleep for 15 hours and my dad thought I was in a coma. What is your favorite book? Kenneth wrote, American Psycho. What are you procrastinating right now? Kenneth wrote, writing a lit paper about Macbeth. Then finally, I came across this question. Where were you when you lost your virginity? Kenneth wrote, debate camp in Moscow, Idaho. Was this the summer camp that Garrett was talking about? 
Capital Debate Summer Camp offer a challenging curriculum for students of all levels interested in debate. We'll build their public speaking skills as well as their researching skills and students will learn how to analyze a topic and in turn they'll build their confidence. For two weeks over the summer of 2014, Emmett High School students piled into a yellow school bus and made the five-hour drive north to Moscow, Idaho, home of the University of Idaho. There, they stayed in the empty university dorms. By day, they learned about speech and rhetoric and practiced composing briefs and conducting research. But by night, some of the students snuck out of their rooms for secret rendezvous with other students. Devon's high school yearbooks feature a few candid snapshots from the summer camp. I scoured them for evidence of Devon and Kenneth in close proximity, but couldn't find any pictures of them together. However, both Devon and Kenneth's names were listed among the camp attendees. I'd like to speak to a patient. Uh, what's the name? Kenneth Bailey. Okay, just hold on. It's me. Oh, hi. Look, I need to ask you something. Okay, hurry. They only give us a couple minutes on the phone. Okay, I'll go fast. I just need to know, did you and Devin ever date? Why are you asking me that? Well, I found the voicemail from Garrett. He says you and Devin hooked up at debate team summer camp. I didn't say anything out of respect You're for kidding me. You fucking lied to me. You lied to everyone. She made me swear in my life to not tell anyone. There were times I convinced myself it didn't happen. She never talked to me. She acted like it never happened. She wouldn't even text me. She didn't want Garrett to find out and use it against what? me. What? Because she was cheating on Isaac. You knew about Garrett this whole fucking time? I can't explain. You knew since episode one, since high school, and you still accused Isaac, outed him to his family, got him kicked out of his fucking house? For what? For drama? For a fucking podcast? I knew that people wouldn't listen if there wasn't a hook. Audiences like red herrings. They want to argue with each other and figure out who they think did it. It's... it's how you get listeners. No. It's how you find... Death. No, I don't believe anything you have to fucking say anymore. Look, they're telling me I have to get off the phone. Just please have faith in me, okay? I don't know if I can fucking do that anymore. I have to go. After this phone call, I contacted Brett to give him an update on everything I had learned in the past few days and to hear an update from him. He told me that the police are still gathering evidence and Kenneth is now officially a person of interest, which is still a step below a suspect and that without a body, no charges have been filed. Brett's connections also told him that they didn't find any evidence of foul play in Garrett's van. So I have to admit that my theory about Garrett having been involved seems less and less likely. 
Unfortunately, with the police looking into him, Garrett stopped cooperating, hired a lawyer, and has refused to turn over the evidence he promised Brett earlier, including the memory card, which held Devin's last recorded moments in her bedroom, and the evidence that would allegedly prove that Devin was receiving income from the hidden camera livestream in the form of Bitcoin. Ironically, this last piece of information, proof that Devin had thousands of dollars in Bitcoin, was the only thing that Kenneth's whole theory about Devin being alive hinged upon. Without money, there's no way Devin could have left town and started a new life. Without money, Devin is almost certainly dead. And with Garrett's home and van turning up zero physical evidence, he was seeming less and less like the primary suspect. I also wanted to quickly clarify something from our last episode. Some of our listeners commented that it seemed like I didn't want to find Devin alive. But nothing could be further from the truth. I hope to God that Kenneth's theory about Devin was true, that she is alive and healthy and traveling the world under a new identity with the love of her life. But I have a responsibility to look at evidence, to follow any lead that comes my way. And that includes investigating Kenneth. Kenneth definitely wanted to be famous. He really looked up to Payne Lindsay, you know, the guy who hosts that one podcast. It's called Up and Vanished. Ever since high school, he just really talked about true crime, and he wanted to make documentaries or even be a crime reporter. And then Serial came out our first year of college, and that was, like, all he could really talk about. And um, and when Devin first went missing, he asked me to start a podcast with him, but I just really didn't have the time, and I think that was before he met you. Wait, hold up. Since when did Kenneth want to start a podcast? Um, I don't know. Since, I think, the search party? That's, I, I mean, he told me that's why he reached out to you. He heard you were the best. That's why he reached out? He knew he wanted to make a podcast when he met me? Yeah. You didn't know? Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I just, there's a lot I didn't know. When Kenneth and I first met, he came into the radio station where I worked, hoping to get some media coverage on Devin's case. When I suggested he make a podcast, Kenneth told me that he had never considered it before. That's when I volunteered to do the audio and help produce it. But now? Now I know that Kenneth wanted to make a podcast all along, and I'm guessing he engineered a situation to meet me, knowing that I had experience in podcasting and hoping I would volunteer to help him. It all feels so manipulative. Why couldn't he have just asked me to help? It is tonight's top story. Tonight you're hearing how fire investigators turn these acts into evidence, which ultimately leads to an arrest. Mike Patrice, fire destroys everything in its path, so investigators have to follow a careful pattern to determine how it started. And sometimes it can take even more time to determine an arson. Fire investigators use a variety of information about the crime scene to determine if a fire was accidental or started intentionally in an act of arson. Before even looking at a crime scene, the situation surrounding the fire is always taken into consideration. Were there any fatalities or serious injuries involved? If a body is found inside with a bullet wound, it's more likely that a fire was set to cover up another crime. If an insurance policy was found to have been bought just days or weeks before the fire, that is also suspicious. Fire investigators also analyze fire patterns, which are the shape, size, and placement of fire damage. These damages can include things like charring, melting, color changes, smoke deposition, expansion, and deformation. For example, most fires burn up and out until they reach the ceiling. 
so a kitchen fire that supposedly started on the range wouldn't burn the floor. Another explanation for a burnt floor in a kitchen fire is if the temperature reaches 1000 degrees Fahrenheit. This causes all combustible surfaces in the room to ignite, a phenomenon known as a flashover. When flashovers occur, all the remaining oxygen in the room is consumed by the fire, leading to a ventilation-controlled fire. This causes the flames to burn more intensely around the windows and doors as the fire seeks out oxygen. As you might expect, this leads to fire patterns that congregate around these ventilation openings. Fire patterns can also determine if a fire had multiple origins, which is a major indicator of arson. Movement patterns help investigators track how the fire moved from room to room and usually appear as diagonal burn patterns that move upward throughout doorways. When soot has been burned away, a phenomenon known as a clean burn, investigators can infer that a fire originated elsewhere. Lines of demarcation also reveal the kinds of fuel materials that were burned, whether they be curtains, drywall, or gasoline, as well as the direction of the fire spread. All of these indicators help investigators determine the origin and cause of a fire. In order to learn more about the fire at the impound lot, I sent a records request to the Garden Valley Fire Department. But the full fire investigation report will likely take several weeks to complete. However, I was able to get my hands on a fire incident report which highlights the results of their initial investigation in the fire at Banks Loman Towing impound lot. The report opens with a summary. At approximately 3.45 a.m., Garden Valley firefighters responded to a reported fire at 370 Timberline Lane. Upon arrival, fire crews found heavy smoke coming from the single-story building and several vehicles on the property. The fire progressed to a second alarm fire and approximately 34 firefighters were called to the scene. There were no fatalities and no injuries reported. The estimated cost of damages is at $876,000. Next, the report lists firefighter observations. Engine 4 pulled directly in front of the garage door at the south side of the building and crews witnessed a heavy, dark gray, pressurized smoke coming from the rear of the building. Crews entered the structure with a 2.5-inch hose line and encountered a large garage room. The smoke was face level as they crawled through on their hands and knees. Inside the garage was a tow truck, which was fully engulfed in flames. Firefighters made their way to an open hallway on the left side and called out for many occupants, but received no response. The offices included two small office rooms separated by a bathroom, but crews were not able to reach the furthest office before getting low air alarms and withdrawing. A second engine was stationed on the northwest corner of the impound lot. The fences were cut to facilitate access to the rear of the building, where crews counted five vehicles with active flames. At that time, the fire flashed out on the west side of the building and several windows blew out from a small smoke explosion. At this time, two ladder pipes flowing approximately 1,000 gallons per minute were engaged. The report then lists a synopsis of interviews. It reads, Wilson Bellingham stated that he was the property owner and the owner of the bank's Lohman towing business. He stated he had maintained sole ownership of the property for eight years. He commented that his property has seen a lot of action lately. When asked what he meant by that comment, Bellingham said that it was strange that this would happen so soon after police paid him a visit to retrieve a vehicle belonging to a missing person he had been stowing for the previous year. He stated that there were no known electrical problems. 
When asked if he knew of any individuals that may wish to cause him harm, Bellingham said that he was a respected member of the community and that he didn't know of anyone who would want to hurt him or his business. The next interview is from a neighbor. Nikki Weston stated that she lived behind Banks Loman Towing for the last 17 years. She stated she noticed the flames after seeing an orange glow from her bathroom window and called 911. She didn't notice any vehicles leaving from the area, nor any individuals in the area. The report then goes on to describe the damage. During the fire, the roof was largely consumed. Parts of the roof that were not consumed were collapsed into the structure. Damage to the offices were extensive, and the room was almost totally destroyed. The fire penetrated the wall stud channel, providing an avenue for the fire to extend toward the high ceilings through the wall, separating the offices from the garage. There was also a burn through the back of the office wall to the exterior of the building. Damage to the garage was less extensive, likely due to minimal fuel sources in the somewhat open area. Taken together, these indicators suggest that the fire started in the offices and moved towards the garage. A large amount of broken glass was found along the ground outside the front two windows. However, the third window at the back office had minimal glass on the ground. Large amounts of glass shards were discovered inside the office room. These findings are inconsistent with the smoke explosion. This indicates that the back office window was bashed in, depositing glass inside the room and indicating a forced entry. Irregular burn patterns in the back office carpeting indicates the presence of an accelerant, likely gasoline, which appears to have been poured through the window onto the wall, carpet, and a chair in the back office. However, due to the flashover in the office, it is impossible to confirm these findings are accurate with an accelerant due to the extensive damage. Investigators recommend the use of accelerant detection canines or gas chromatography mass spectrometry to positively detect an accelerant. The five vehicles with fire damage were those parked on the west side of the lot and appeared to have ignited due to their proximity of the building fire. Initial findings indicate the back office to be the origin of the fire. This appears to be the single origin of the fire. No remains of candles or incense were found in the area of origin. No remains of smoking materials were found in the vicinity of the origin. However, due to the degree of destruction in the area of origin, these possibilities cannot be eliminated. There is no natural gas supply to the building and no natural gas appliances were found in the building. Natural gas can be eliminated as the source of the fire. Forensic inspection of electrical systems showed no apparent faults or failures. The back office did contain a computer which was primarily used for the building's security system. This computer was plugged into a receptacle on the wall furthest from the window, separating offices from the garage. No security footage was recovered from the computers, and the hard drives were destroyed beyond recovery. Due to the flashover that occurred in the offices and the extensive damage in those areas, electrical failures cannot be eliminated as the source of the fire. Criminal activity was considered as a possible cause of the fire. Interviews revealed that a possible motive for the fire could be a related missing persons investigation. Police say a vehicle belonging to Devin Riesling, a missing person since February 2019, was being stored at the fire location. However, several weeks before the fire, the vehicle was taken into police custody for forensic purposes. The presence of an accelerant and the broken office window do suggest an intentionally set fire, but further forensic testing must be done to confirm that arson is the cause of the fire. 
that was a long report, so thanks to everyone for staying with me while I read it. To summarize, authorities strongly suspect that the Banks-Lohman towing fire was intentionally set in an act of arson. The back office, which contained the computer used for the business security system, was the most heavily damaged and was identified as the origin of the fire. The window to this room was smashed in and broken glass was found inside the room indicating it was broken into. All of these things really look bad for Kenneth. Is it possible that Kenneth could have purposely set the fire to the impound lot? None of it made sense. If the security tapes contained in that building proved that Kenneth's blood was in Devon's car because of a genuine accident or contamination that occurred way after her disappearance, then why would Kenneth want those tapes destroyed? It only makes sense that Kenneth would want the footage gone forever if it didn't prove his innocence. If Kenneth was the one to set fire to this building, it only makes sense that he was involved in Devon's disappearance. That being said, the fire department has not yet confirmed that arson did in fact occur. So maybe we're just jumping to conclusions. While I was doing research about arson investigation, I also found some interesting information about the reliability of these investigations that I think is pretty relevant. Fire investigation is not a precise science. Until the 1990s, fire investigation had very little scientific backing and was mostly based upon myths that had been passed down by previous investigators. Previously, investigators believed that concrete pitting was evidence that an accelerant like gasoline had been used. But this turned out to be completely bogus and pitting was caused by any hot fire regardless of the fuel source. Which is tragic because there have been a lot of false arson convictions based on this faulty evidence. Before 1992, there was no nationally recognized standard for fire investigation. Fortunately, in 1992, the National Fire Protection Association created a set of standards and procedures for scientifically-based fire investigations known as the NFPA 921. Adoption of this manual was slow at first, but is now widespread and was adopted in Idaho in 1998. However, significant doubt over the reliability and accuracy of fire investigations still remains. In 2005, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms conducted a fire investigation seminar in which they constructed two identical rooms which were allowed to burn for several minutes each. Out of 53 fire investigators, only six were able to correctly determine the origin of the fires. Six out of 53. That's 11%. Those aren't very good odds. Worse, the NFPA does not require fire investigators to have post-secondary education, only to remain current in fire investigation methods by attending workshops and seminars. I'm certainly not trying to cast doubt on all the fire investigations, but I do think it's important to keep this in mind before we cast judgment. Still, it's difficult not to see how the evidence is pointing to Kenneth having set the impound lot fire. Hospital, how can I help you? Hi, may I please speak with a patient, uh, Kenneth Bailey? Sure, um, let me go look for him, just a second.
Um, so Kenneth is in group therapy right now, so he's not available, but um, if you want to, you can try again later. Oh, um, okay. Uh, when do you think- sorry, I have another call. When do you think he'll be free? Um, I don't really know what his schedule is, but you can try again later. Okay. Hello? No, Mom, what do you mean? That picture! It's, it's so disturbing! I think you should take it down. What picture? What are you talking about? The, the one Kenneth just posted on Instagram, I think? I don't, I don't think it's very respectful to be posting pictures of a dead body. That's it for this episode of Dead of the Night Podcast. If you have any information about Devin Riesling, please call 208-398-3110. This episode was produced by Gina Harris, Spencer Hudson, and Danielle Choda, and I'm Jessica O'Neill.